CD 10. The wolves had gone a long way down the river. Sybil had said on both banks, there wasn't a sniff of him. Further down was a mass of rapids and another fall. What couldn't kill him would certainly make him wish it could. If he'd gone downstream, but upstream there was nothing but wild water too, right up to the town. No, he couldn't. Surely no one could swim up a waterfall. A chilly little feeling began at the back of Vimes's neck. But any sensible person would get right out of the country, wouldn't they? The wolves were looking for him. Tantony wouldn't remember him fondly, and if Vimes judged the king correctly, then the dwarfs would have some dark little revenge in store too. The trouble was that, if you formed a picture in your mind of a sensible person and tried to superimpose it on a picture of Wolfgang. You couldn't get them to meet anywhere. There was an old saying, wasn't there? As a dog returneth to its vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. Well, that got Wolfgang coming and going. Vimes stood up and turned around carefully. There was no one there. Sounds came in from the street gateway: people laughing, the sound of a harness, the clank of a shovel clearing up last night's snow. He sidled into the embassy, his back to the wall, and groped his way towards the stairs, peering into every doorway. He ran across the expanse of the hallway, did a tumbling roll, and ended up against the far wall. "Is there anything wrong, sir?" said Cherry. She was watching him from the top of the stairs. "Ah,、uh, have you seen anything odd?" said Vimes, dusting himself off self-consciously. "And I realise we're talking about a house with Igor in it. Could you give me a hint, sir? Wolfgang, God's damn it!" But he's dead, sir, isn't he? Not dead enough.、Uh, what do you want me to do? Where's Detritus? Polishing his helmet, sir," said Cherry, on the point of panic. "What the hell is he wasting time with that for?" "Eh,、uh, uh, because we're supposed to leave for the coronation in ten minutes, sir." "Oh yes." "Lady Sybil told me to come and find you in a very distinct tone of voice, sir." At which point Sybil's voice boomed along the corridor. Sam Vimes, you come here. That one, sir," Cherry added helpfully. Vimes trailed into the bedroom. Sybil was wearing another blue dress, a tiara, and a firm expression. "Is it a posh do?" said Vimes. "I thought if I put on a clean shirt." "Your official dress uniform is in the dressing room," said Sybil. "It was a rather long day yesterday." "This is a coronation, Samuel Vimes. It is not a come as you are. Go and get dressed quickly." Including, and I don't want to have to say this twice, the helmet with the feathers, but not the red tights," said Vimes, hoping against hope. "Please, the red tights, Sam. Go without saying." "They go at the knees," said Vimes, but it was the grumble of the defeated. "I'll ring for Igor to come and help you. Things will have come to a pretty pass when I can't put my own tights on, dear. Thank you." Vimes dressed hurriedly, listening for anything. Some creak in the wrong place, perhaps. At least this was a watch uniform, even if it did have buckled shoes. It included a sword. The duking outfit didn't allow for one, which had always struck Vimes as amazingly stupid. You got made a duke for being a fighter, then they gave you nothing to fight with. There was a tinkle of glass back in the bedroom, and Lady Sybil was astonished to see her husband enter at a run with his sword raised. I dropped the top of a scent bottle, Sam. What's up with you? Even Angua says he's probably miles away and in no shape to cause trouble. Why are you so nervy? 
Vimes put down the sword and tried to relax. Because our Wolfgangs are damned bottled covey, dear. I know the sort. Any normal person, they crawl off if they get a beating. Or they have the sense to stay down, at least. But sometimes you get one who just won't let go. Eight stone weaklings who'll try to headbutt detritus. Evil little bantamweight bastards who'll bust a bottle on the bar and try to attack five watchmen all at once. You know what I mean? Idiots who'll go on fighting long after they should stop. The only way to put them down is to put them out. I think I recognise the type, yes, said Lady Sybil, with an irony that failed to register with Sam Vimes until some days later. She picked some lint off his cloak. He's going to be back. I can feel it in me water, mumbled Vimes. Sam? Yes? Can I have your attention for a couple of minutes? Wolfgang is Angua's problem, not yours. I really need to talk to you very quietly for a little while without you running off after werewolves. She said it as if this was a minor character flaw, like a tendency to leave his boots where people could trip over them. Uh, they run after me, he pointed out. But there's always people being found dead or trying to kill you. I don't ask them to, dear. Sam, I'm going to have a baby. Vimes's head was full of werewolves, and his automatic husbandly circuitry cut in ready to respond with Yes, dear, or Choose any colour you'd like, or I'll get someone to sort it out. Fortunately, his brain itself had its own sense of self-preservation and, not wishing to be inside a skull that was stoved in by a bedside lamp, rewrote Sybil's words in white-hot fire across his inner eyeball and then went and hid. That's why the response came out as a weak, What? How? The normal way, I hope. Vimes sat down on the bed. And not right now. I very much doubt it, but Mrs Content says it's definite and she's been a midwife for fifty years. Oh. Some more brain functions crept back. Good. That's good. It'll probably take a while to sink in. Yes. Another neuron lit up. Er, uh, everything will be all right, will it? What do you mean? Er, uh, you're rather... you're not as... you... Sam, my family have been bred for breeding... It's an aristocratic tradition. Of course everything will be all right. Oh, good. Vimes sat and stared. His head felt like some vast sea that had just been parted by a prophet. Where there should have been activity, there was just bare sand and the occasional floundering fish. But huge, steep waves were tottering on either side, and in a minute they would crash down and cause cities to flood a hundred miles away. More glass tinkled, somewhere downstairs. Sam, Igor's probably just dropped something, said Sybil, seeing his expression. That's all. Probably just knocked over a glass. There was a snarl and a scream abruptly cut off. Vimes leapt off the bed. Lock the door after me and push the bed against it. He paused for a moment in the doorway. Without straining yourself, he added, and ran for the stairs. Wolfgang was trotting across the hall. He was different this time. Wolf ears sprouted from a head that was still human, his hair had grown around him like a mane. Patches of fur were tufted on his skin and were mostly streaked with blood. The rest of him was having trouble deciding what it was. One arm was trying to be a paw. Vimes reached for his sword and remembered that it was back on the bed. He rummaged in his pockets. He knew the other thing was here. He remembered picking it up off the dressing table. His fingers closed on his badge. He held it out. Stop in the name of the door! Wolfgang looked up at him, one eye glowing yellow. The other was a mess. Hello, civilised, he growled. 
You wait for me, hey? He ducked into the corridor that led to the room where Carrot lay. Vimes tried to catch him up, saw claw-tipped fingers curl around the door and hurl it out of its frame. Carrot was reaching for his sword, and then Wolfgang was flying backwards under the full weight of Angua. They landed back in the hall, a rolling ball of fur, claws and teeth. When werewolf fights werewolf, there are advantages to either shape. It's an eternal struggle to get a position where hands beat claws, and body shapes have lives of their own, a dangerous attribute if it is allowed to act unchecked. A cat's instinct is to jump on something that moves, but this is not a correct action if what is moving has a fizzing fuse. The mind has to fight its own body for control and the other body for survival. Mix this together and the noise suggests that there are four creatures in the whirling ball of rage and each one of them has brought several friends and none of them like any of the others. A shadow made Vimes spin round. Detritus in shining armour was aiming the peacemaker over the banister. Sergeant, no, you'll hit Angua too. Not a problem, sir, said Detritus, cos it won't kill him, so all we have to do, see, is sort out the bits to a wolfgang and belt him over the head when he gets himself back together. If you fire that in here, his bits will be mixed up with our bits and there won't be big bits. Put the damn thing down. Wolfgang couldn't control his shape well, Vimes saw. He couldn't quite manage to be full wolf or full human, and Angua was making the most of that. She was ducking, weaving, biting. But even if you could put him down, you couldn't put him out. Mr Vimes? Now it was Cheery, beckoning urgently from the passage that led to the kitchen. You ought to come here right now. She was white-faced. Vimes nudged Detritus. If they separate, just grab him, right? Just try to hold him still. Igor was lying in the kitchen, surrounded by broken glass. Wolfgang must have landed on him and taken out his perpetual anger on a soft target. The patchwork man was bleeding heavily and lay like a doll that had been flung hard against a wall. Martha, he groaned. Can you do anything for him, Cheery? I wouldn't know where to start, sir. Martha, you've got to remember this, right? Igor groaned. Uh, yes, what? You've got to get me into the ice house downstairs and let Igor know, understand? Which Igor? said Vimes desperately. Any Igor. Igor clutched at Vimes's sleeve. Me heart's had it, but my liver's as right as ninepence, tell him. Nothing wrong with my brain that a good bolt of lightning won't thought out. Igor can have me right hand. He's got a customer waiting. There's years of good service left in my lower intestine. Left eye not up to much, but I dare say some poor soul can find a use for it. The right knee is nearly new. Old Miss Prodsky down the road would value my hip joints, tell him. Got all that? Yes, yes, I think so. Right. Remember, what goes around comes around. Igor sank down. He's gone, sir, said Cheery. But he'll soon be up and on someone else's feet, Vimes thought. He didn't say it aloud. Cheery was soft-hearted. Instead, he said, Can you get him to his ice house? By the sound of it, Angua's winning. He ran back into the hall. It was a wreck. As he arrived, Angua managed to get a headlock on Wolfgang and ran him into a wooden pillar. He staggered, and she spun and scythed his legs from under him with a kick. I taught her that, Vimes thought, as her brother landed heavily. Some of that dirty fighting, that's ank pork fighting, that is. But Wolfgang was up again like a rubber ball and somersaulting over her head. That brought him to the front door. He smashed it open with a blow and leapt out into the street. And that was it. A room full of debris, 
snowflakes blowing in and Angua sobbing on the floor. He picked her up. She was bleeding in a dozen places. That was as much of a diagnosis as Sam Vimes, not used these days to surveying naked young women at close quarters, thought he could decently attempt. It's all right. He's gone, he said, because he had to say something. It's not all right. He'll lie low for a while and then he'll be back. I know him. It won't matter where we go. You've seen him. He'll just track us down and follow us and then he'll kill Carrot. Why? Because Carrot's mine. Sybil advanced down the stairs, carrying Vimes's crossbow. Oh, you poor thing, she said. Come here. Let's find something to cover you up. Sam, isn't there something you can do? Vimes stared at her. Built into Sybil's expression was the unquestioning assumption that he could do something. An hour ago, he'd been having breakfast. Ten minutes ago, he'd been putting on his stupid uniform, in a real room with his wife. And it had been a real world with a real future. And suddenly the dark was back, spattered with red rage. And if he gave into it, he'd lose. That was the beast screaming inside, and Wolfgang was a better beast. Vimes knew he didn't have the knack the mindless, driving nastiness. Sooner or later his brain would start operating and kill him. Perhaps, said his brain, you start by using me. Yes, he said, yes, I think there is something I can do. Fire and silver, thought Vimes. Well, silver's in pretty short supply in Uberwald. Do you want I should come? said Detritus, who could pick up signals. No, I think... I think I want to make an arrest. I don't want to start a war. Anyway, you need to wait here in case he doubles back. But you could lend me your penknife. Vimes found a sheet in one of the broken boxes and tore off a long strip. Then he took his crossbow from his wife. You see, now he's committed a crime in Ankh-Morpork, he said. That makes him mine. Sam, we're not, you know. Everyone kept telling me I wasn't in Ankh-Morpork so often I believed it. But this embassy is Ankh-Morpork, and right now, he hefted the bow, I am the law. Sam? Yes, dear? I know that look. Don't hurt anyone else, will you? Don't worry, dear. I'm going to be civilised about it. There was a cluster of dwarfs in the street outside, surrounding one lying on the snow in a pool of blood. Which way? said Vimes. And if they didn't understand his words, they understood the question. Several of them pointed along the street. As he walked... Vimes cradled the crossbow and lit a thin cigar. Now this he understood. He was never at ease with politics, where good and bad were just, apparently, two ways of looking at the same thing, or at least were described like that by the people who were on the side Vimes thought of as bad. It was all too complicated, and where it was complicated, it meant that someone was trying to fool you. But on the street, in hot pursuit, it was all so clear. Someone was going to be still standing at the end of the chase, and all you had to concentrate on was making sure it was you. On a street corner, a cart had overturned, and its driver was kneeling by a horse that had been ripped open. Which way? The man pointed. The new street was wider, busier, and there were a number of elegant coaches moving slowly through the crowds. Of course, the coronation. But that belonged to the world of the Duke of Ankh, and right now he wasn't here. There was only Sam Vimes, who didn't much like coronations. There were screams up ahead, and the flow of people was suddenly against Vimes, so that he appeared to be heading upstream like a salmon. The street opened into a large square. People were running now, which suggested to Vimes that he was still moving in the right direction. It was pretty clear that you'd find Wolfgang somewhere no one else wanted to be. 
There was a flurry of movement on one side of him, and a squad of the town guard trotted past. They halted. One of them walked back. It was Tantony. He looked Vimes up and down. I have you to thank for last night, he said. There were fresh scars on his face, but they were already healing. We've got to get an Igor, Vimes reminded himself. Yes, said Vimes. The good bits and the bad bits. And you see what happens when you stand up to a werewolf? Vimes opened his mouth to say, Is that a uniform you're wearing, Captain, or is it fancy dress? But stopped himself just in time. No, it's what happens when you're fool enough to stand up to a werewolf with no backup and no firepower, he said. I'm sorry, but we all have to learn that lesson. Integrity makes very poor armour. The man reddened. What is your business here? he said. Our hairy friend just murdered someone in the embassy, which is... Yes, yes, Ankh-Morpork territory, but this isn't. I am the watchman here. I'm in hot pursuit, Captain. Ah, I see you know the term. I... I... that doesn't apply. Really? Every copper knows about the rule of hot pursuit. You can chase the suspect over your legal boundary if you're in hot pursuit. Of course, there may be a bit of legal argy-bargy once he's caught, but we can save that for later. I intend to arrest him myself for crimes committed today. You're too young to die. Besides, I saw him first. Tell you what, after he's killed me, you can have a go. Fair enough? He looked Tantony in the eye. Now, get out of the way. You know I could have you arrested. Probably. But until now, I'd got you down as an intelligent man. Tantony nodded and proved Vimes right. All right. How may we be of assistance? By keeping out of the way. Oh, and scraping up my remains if this doesn't work. Vimes felt the man stare on the back of his neck as he set off again. There was a statue in the middle of the square. It was of the fifth elephant. Some ancient craftsman had tried to achieve in bronze and stone the moment when the allegorical animal had thundered down out of the sky and gifted the country its incredible mineral wealth. Around it were idealised and rather heavy-set figures of dwarfs and men holding hammers and swords and striking noble attitudes. They probably represented truth, industry, justice and mother's homemade fat pancakes, for all Vimes knew, but he felt truly far from home in a country where, apparently, no one wrote graffiti on public statues. A man was sprawled on the cobbles with a woman kneeling beside him. She looked tearfully at Vimes and said something in Uberwaldian. All he could do was nod. Wolfgang jumped down from a perch on top of the statue to bad sculpting and landed a few yards away, grinning. Mr. Civilised, you want another game? You see this badge I'm holding up, said Vimes. It's a very small one, but you see it. Yes, I see your little badge. Wolfgang started to move sideways, arms hanging loosely by his sides. And I'm armed. Did you hear me tell you I'm armed? Is that silly bow? But you just heard me say I'm armed. Yes, said Vimes loudly, turning to face the moving werewolf. He puffed on his cigar, letting a glow build up. Yes, is this what you call civilised? Vimes grinned. Yes, this is how we do it. My way is better. And now you're under arrest, said Vimes. Come along and make no fuss, and we'll tie you securely and hand you over to whatever passes for justice around here. I realise this may be difficult. Ha! Your ankh pork sense of humour. Yes, any minute now I'll drop my trousers. So you're resisting arrest? Why these stupid questions? Now Wolfgang was almost dancing. Are you resisting arrest? Yes, indeed, oh yes, good joke. Look at me laughing. Vimes tossed the crossbow aside and swung a tube out from under his cloak. 
it was made of cardboard, and a red cone protruded from one end. A stupid, silly firework, shouted Wolfgang, and charged. Could be, said Vines. He didn't bother to aim. These things were never designed for accuracy or speed. He simply removed his cigar from his mouth, and, as Wolfgang ran towards him, pressed it into the fuse hole. The mortar jerked as the charge went off, and its payload came tumbling out slowly and trailing smoke in a lazy spiral. It looked like the stupidest weapon since the toffee spear. Wolfgang danced back and forth under it, grinning, and as it passed several feet over his head, he leapt up gracefully and caught it in his mouth. And then it exploded. The flares were made to be seen twenty miles away. Even with his eyes tightly shut, Vimes saw the glare through his lids. When the body had stopped rolling, Vimes looked around the square. People were watching him from the coaches. The crowds were silent. There were a lot of things he could say. Son of a bitch would have been a good one. Or he could say, Welcome to civilization. He could have said, Laugh this one off. He might have said, Fetch. But he didn't. Because if he had said any of those things, then he'd have known that what he had just done was murder. He turned away, tossed the empty mortar over his shoulder and muttered, The hell with it. At times like this, teetotalism bit down hard. Tantony was watching. Don't say a word out of place, said Vimes without altering his stride. Just don't. I thought those things shot very fast. I cut down the charge, said Vimes, tossing Detritus's penknife in the air and catching it again. I didn't want to hurt anyone. I heard you warn him that you were armed. I heard him twice resist arrest. I heard everything. I heard everything you wanted me to hear. Yes. Of course, he might not have known that law. Oh, really? Well, I didn't know it was legal in these parts to chase some poor sod across the country and maul him to death. And do you know, that didn't stop anyone. Vimes shook his head. And don't give me that pained look. Oh, yes, now you can say I did it wrong. You can say I ought to have handled it differently. That sort of thing is easy to say afterwards. I'll say it myself, maybe. In the middle of every night, he added to himself, after I've woken up seeing those mad eyes. But you wanted him stopped as much as I did. Oh, yes, you did. But you couldn't, because you didn't have the means, and I did because I could. And you've got the luxury of judging me because you're still alive. And that's the truth of it, all wrapped up. Lucky one for you, eh? The crowds parted ahead of Vimes. He could hear whispers around him. On the other hand, said Tantony distantly, as if he hadn't heard what Vimes had just said, you did only fire that thing to warn him. Huh? Clearly you were not to know that he would automatically try to catch the explosive, said Tantony, and it seemed to Vimes that he was rehearsing the line. The dog-like qualities of the werewolf could hardly have occurred to a man from the big city. Vimes held his gaze for a moment, and then patted him on the shoulder. Hold on to that thought, he said. A coach pulled to a halt beside him as he continued on his way. It slid to a stop so silently, not a jingle of harness, not a clop of horseshoe, that Vimes jumped sideways out of shock. The horses were black, with black plumes on their heads. The coach was a hearse, the traditional long glass windows now filled with smoked black glass. There was no driver, the reins were simply loosely knotted on a brass railing. A door swung open, a veiled figure leaned out. Your Excellency, do let me give you a lift back to the embassy, you look so tired. No, thank you, said Vimes grimly. 
I apologize for the emphasis on black, said Lady Margolotta. It is rather expected of one on these occasions, I'm afraid. Vimes swung himself up and into the carriage with furious speed. You tell me, he growled, waving a finger under her nose, how anyone can swim up a vertical waterfall. I was prepared to believe anything about that bastard, but even he couldn't have managed that. Certainly that is a puzzle, said the vampire calmly, as the driverless coach moved on. Superhuman strength, possibly? And now he's gone, and that's one up for the vampires, eh? I would like to think that it's going to be a blessing for the whole country. Lady Margolotta leaned back. Her rat, with the bow round its neck, watched Vime suspiciously from its pink cushion. Wolfgang was a sadistic murderer, a throwback who frightened even his own family. Delphine, sorry, Angua, will have some peace of mind. An intelligent young lady, I've always thought. Leaving here was the best thing she ever did. The darkness will be a little less frightening. The world will be a better place. And I've handed you Oberwald, said Vimes. Don't be stupid. Oberwald is large. This is one small part of it. And now it's going to change. You have been a breath of fresh air. Lady Margolotta drew a long holder from her bag and inserted a black cigarette. It lit itself. Like you, I have found consolation in a different vice, she said. Black Scopani. They grow the tobacco in total darkness. Do try some. You could waterproof roofs with it. I believe Igor makes cigars by rolling the leaves between his thighs. She blew out a stream of smoke. Or someone's thighs, anyway. Of course, I am sorry for the Baroness. It must be so hard for a werewolf, realizing that she's raised a monster. As for the Baron, give him a bone and he's happy for hours. Another stream of smoke. Do look after Angua. Happy families is not a popular game among the undead. You helped him come back, just like you did for me. Oh, he'd have come back anyway in time, some time when you weren't expecting him. He'd track Angua like a wolverine. Best that things ended today. She gave him an appraising look through the smoke. You're good at anger, Your Grace. You save it up for when you need it. You couldn't have known I'd beat him. You left me in the snow. I wasn't even armed. Havelock Vetinari would not have sent a fool to Uberwald. More smoke which writhed in the air. At least, not a stupid fool. Vimes's eyes narrowed. You've met him, haven't you? Yes. And taught him all he knows, right? She blew smoke down her nostrils and gave him a radiant smile. I'm sorry. You think I taught him? My dear sir, as for what I've got out of all this, well, a little breathing space, a little influence. Politics is more interesting than blood, Your Grace, and much more fun. Beware the reformed vampire, sir. The craving for blood is only a craving, and with care it can be diverted along different channels. Uberwald is going to need politicians. Ah, I believe we are here she added, although Vimes could have sworn that she hadn't so much as glanced out of the window. The door opened. If my Igor's still there, do tell him I will see him downtown. So nice to have met you. I'm sure we shall meet again. And do please present my fondest regards to Lord Vetinari. The door shut behind Vimes. The coach moved off. He swore under his breath. 
The hall of the embassy was full of eagles. Several of them touched their forelocks, or at least the line of stitch marks, when they saw him. They were carrying heavy metal containers of varying sizes, on which frost crystals were forming. What's this? he said. Eagle's funeral? Then it sank in. Oh, my gods, with party loot bags. Everyone gets something to take home. Oh, you could say that, sir. You could call it that, said an eagle. But we think that putting bodies in the ground is rather gruesome. All those worms and things. He tapped the tin box under his arm. This way, he'll mostly be up and about again in no time, he added brightly. Reincarnation on the instalment plan, eh? said Vimes weakly. Most amusing, sir, said the eagle gravely. But it's amazing what people need. Hearts, livers, hands. We keep a list, sir, of deserving cases. By tonight, there will be some very lucky people in these parts. And these parts in some very lucky people. Well done, sir, I can see you are a wit. And one day, some poor soul will have a really nasty brain injury, and... He tapped the chilly box again. What goes around comes around. He nodded at Cheery and at Vimes. I must be going now, sir. So much to do. You know how it is. I can imagine, said Vimes. He thought, the axe of my grandfather. You change the bits around, but they'll always be an eagle. They're really rather selfless people, sir, said Cheery, when the last eagle had lurched off. They do a lot of good work. Eh, they even took his suit and his boots because they'll be useful to someone. I know, I know, but... I know what you mean, sir. Everyone's in the drawing-room. Lady Sybil said you'd be back. She said anyone without look in their eye comes back. We're all going to the coronation. Might as well see this through. Is that what you'll be wearing, Cherry? Yes, sir. But it's just ordinary dwarf clothes, trousers and everything. Yes, sir. But Sybil said you'd got a fetching little green number and a helmet with a feather in it. Yes, sir. You're free to wear whatever you want, you know that. Yes, sir. And then I thought about Dee, and I watched the King when he was talking to you, and, well, I can wear what I like, sir, that's the point. I don't have to wear that dress, and I shouldn't wear it just because other people don't want me to. Besides, it made me look like a rather stupid lettuce. That's all a bit complicated for me, Cheery. It's probably a dwarf thing, sir. Vimes pushed open the doors to the drawing-room. It's over, he said. Did you hurt anyone? said Sybil. Only Wolfgang. He'll be back, said Angua. No. You killed him? No. I put him down. I see you're up, Captain. Carrot got to his feet awkwardly and saluted. Sorry, I haven't been much use, sir. You just chose the wrong time to fight fair. Are you well enough to come? Eh, Angua and I want to stay here, if it's all right with you, sir. We've got things to talk about, and, er, do. It was the first coronation Vimes had attended. He'd expected it to be stranger, touched somehow by glory. Instead, it was dull, but at least it was a big dull, dullness distilled and cultivated over thousands of years, until it had developed an impressive shine, as even grime will if you polish it long enough. It was dull, hammered into the shape and form of ceremony. It had also been time to test the capacity of the average bladder. A number of dwarfs read passages from ancient scrolls. There were what sounded like excerpts from the Caboldian saga, and Vimes wondered desperately if they were in for another opera. 
but they were over after a mere hour. There were more readings from different dwarfs. At one point the king, who had been standing alone in the centre of a circle of candlelight, was presented with a leather bag, a small mining axe and a ruby. Vimes didn't catch the meaning of any of this, but by the sounds it was clear that each item was of huge and satisfying significance to the thousands who were standing behind him. Thousands? No, there must be tens of thousands, he thought. The bowl of the cavern was full of tier upon tier of dwarfs. Maybe a hundred thousand. And he was in the front row. No one had said anything. The four of them had simply been led there and left, although the murmurings suggested that the presence of detritus was causing considerable attention. Senior, long-bearded and richly clothed dwarfs were all around them. Someone was being taught something. Vimes wondered who the lesson was directed at. Finally the scone was brought in, small and dull, and yet carried by twenty-four dwarfs on a large bier. It was laid reverentially on a stool. He could sense the change in the air of the huge cavern, and once again he thought, "'There's no magic, you poor devils, there's no history. I'll bet my wages the damn thing was moulded with rubber from a vat that had last been used in the preparation of Sonky's Evershore Dependables, and there's your holy relic for you.' There were more readings, much shorter this time. Then the dwarfs who had been participating in the endless and baffling hours withdrew from the centre of the cavern, leaving the king looking as small and alone as the scone itself. He stared around him, and although it was surely impossible for him to have seen Vimes among the thousands in the gloom, it did seem that his gaze rested on the Ankh-Morpork party for a fraction of a second. The king sat down. A sigh began. It grew louder and louder, a hurricane made up of the breath of a nation. It echoed back and forth among the rocks until it drowned out all other sounds. Vimes had half expected the scone to explode or crumble or flash red-hot. Which was stupid, said a dwindling part of himself. It was a fake, a nonsense, something made in Ankh-Morpork for money, something that had already cost lives. It was not, it could not be real. But in the roaring air he knew that it was, for all who needed to believe, and in a belief so strong that truth was not the same as fact, he knew that for now, and yesterday, and tomorrow, both the thing and the whole of the thing. Angua noticed that Carrot was walking better, even as they reached the forest below the falls, and the shovel over his shoulder hardly burdened him at all. There were wolf prints all over the snow. They won't have stayed, she said, as they walked between the trees. They felt things keenly when he died, but... Wolves look to the future. They don't try to remember things. They are lucky, said Carrot. They're realistic. It's just that the future contains the next meal and the next danger. Is your arm all right? It feels as good as new. They found the freezing mass of fur lying at the water's edge. Carrot pulled it out of the water, scraped off the snow higher up the shingle, and started to dig. After a while he took off his shirt. The bruises were already fading. Angua sat and looked over the water, listening to the thud of the spade and the occasional grunt when Carrot hit a tree root. Then she heard the soft slither of something being pulled over snow, a pause, and then the sound of sand and stones being shoveled into a hole. "'Do you want to say a few words?' said Carrot. "'You heard the howl last night. That's how wolves do it,' said Angua, still looking out across the water. "'There aren't any other words.' Perhaps just a moment's silence, then, she spun round. Carrot, don't you remember last night? Didn't you wonder what I might become? 
Didn't you worry about the future? No. Why the hell not? It hasn't happened yet. Shall we get back? It'll be dark soon. And tomorrow? I'd like you to come back to Ankh-Morpork. Why? There's nothing for me there. Carrot patted the soil over the grave. Is there anything left for you here? he said. Besides, I... Don't you dare say the words, Angua thought. Not at a time like this. And then they both became aware of the wolves. They were creeping through the trees, darker shadows in the evening light. They're hunting, said Angua, grabbing Carrot's arm. Oh, don't worry. They don't attack human beings for no reason. Carrot. Yes? The wolves were closing in. I'm not human. But last night... That was different. They remembered Gavin. Now I'm just a werewolf to them. She watched him turn to look at the advancing wolves. The hares were up on their backs. They were growling. They moved with the strange sidle of those whose hatred could just manage to overcome their fear. And at any moment, that balance in one of them was going to tip all the way, and then it would be all over. There was a leap, and it was Carrot who made it. He grabbed the lead wolf by its neck and tail and held on as it struggled and snapped. Its frantic efforts to escape resulted only in it running in a circle with Carrot in the middle, the other wolves backing away from the whirl of grey. Then, as it stumbled, he bit it on the back of the neck. It screamed. Carrot let go and stood up. He looked at the circle of wolves. They shied away from his gaze. Hmm, he said. The wolf on the ground whined and got to its feet awkwardly. Mm. It tucked its tail between its legs and backed off, but it still seemed to be attached to Carrot by an invisible lead. Angua, said Carrot, still watching it carefully. Yes? Can you speak wolf, I mean, in this shape? A bit. Look, how did you know what to do? Oh, I've watched animals, said Carrot, as if that was an explanation. Please tell them. Tell them if they go away now, I won't harm them. She managed to bark out the words. It had all changed in such a tiny handful of seconds. Now Carrot wrote the script. And now tell them that although I'm going away, I may be back. What's the name of this one? He nodded at the cowering wolf. That's Eats Wrong Meat, Angua whispered. He was. He's the leader. Now Gavin's gone. Then tell them that I'm quite happy that he should go on leading them. Tell them all that. They watched her intently. She knew what they were thinking. He'd beaten the leader. It was all sorted out. Wolves did not have a lot of mental space for uncertainty. Doubt was a luxury for species that did not live one meal away from starvation. They still had a gavin-shaped hole in their minds, and Carrot had stepped into it. Of course, it wouldn't last long, but it didn't need to. He always, always finds a way in, she thought. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't plot. He simply slides in. I saved him because he couldn't save himself, and Gavin saved him because... because... because he had some reason. And I'm almost, almost certain that Carrot doesn't know how he manages to wrap the world around him. Almost certain. He's good and kind, and born to be a king of the ancient sort that wore oak leaves and ruled from a seat under a tree, and though he tries hard, he never had a cynical thought. I'm almost certain. Let's go now, said Carrot. The coronation will be over soon, and I don't want Mr. Vimes to worry. Carrot, I've got to know something. 
Yes? That might happen to me. Have you ever thought about that? He was my brother, after all. Being two things at the same time, and never quite being one, we're not the most stable of creatures. Gold and muck come out of the same shaft, said Carrot. That's just a dwarf saying. It's true, though. You're not him. Well, if it happened, if it did, would you do what Vimes did, Carrot? Would it be you who picked up a weapon and came after me? I know you won't lie. I've got to know. Would it be you? A little snow slid down from the trees. The wolves watched. Carrot looked up for a moment at the grey sky and then nodded. Yes. She sighed. Promise, she said. Vimes was surprised at how quickly a coronation became a working day. There was a flourish of echoing horns, a, a general flow of the crowd, and gradually a queue in front of the king. They haven't even given him time to get comfy, said Lady Sybil as they headed towards the exit. Our kings are working kings, said Cheery, and Vimes detected the pride in her voice. But now is the time when the king awards favours. A dwarf caught up with Vimes and tugged his cloak respectfully. The king wishes to see you now, your excellency, he said. There's an almighty cue. Nevertheless, the dwarf gave a polite cough, the king wishes to see you now, all of you. They were led to the front of the queue. Vimes felt many eyes boring into the small of his back. The king dismissed the previous supplicants with a regal nod as the Ankh-Morpork party was deftly inserted at the top of the line, supplanting a dwarf whose beard went down to his knees. The king looked up at them for a moment, and then the internal filing system threw up a card. "'Ah, it's yourselves good as new,' he said. "'Now what was it I was going to do?' "'Oh, I remember. Lady Sibyl,' she curtsied. "'Classically we give rings at this time,' said the king. "'Between ourselves, many dwarfs consider this a bit... "'Well, bath salts, see. "'But I believe they are still welcome, "'and so this, Lady Sibyl, is perhaps a token of things to come.' "'It was a thin silver ring.' Vimes was taken aback at this parsimony, but Sybil could accept a bunch of dead rats graciously. Oh, how one... We normally give gold, the king went on. Very popular, and of course you can sing about it. But this has rarity value, see. It is the first silver that has been mined in Uberwald in hundreds of years. I thought there was a rule that... Vimes began. I ordered the mines reopened last night, said the king pleasantly. It seemed an auspicious time. We shall soon have ore for sale, Your Excellency, but if Lady Sybil doesn't get involved in the negotiations and bankrupt us, I for one shall be very grateful. The king added, Miss Littlebottom, I see, has not graced us with a sartorial extravaganza today. Cheery stared. You're not wearing a dress, said the king. No, sire, although I do note a few unobtrusive touches of mascara and lipstick. Yes, sire, squeaked Cheery on the point of death through shock. There's nice. Do be sure to let me know the name of your dressmaker, the king went on. I may have some custom for her in the fullness of time. I've thought long and hard. Vimes blinked. Cheery had gone pale. Had anyone else heard that? Had he? Sibyl nudged him in the ribs. Your mouth's open, Sam, she whispered. So he had heard it. He heard the king's voice again. And a bag of gold is always acceptable. Cheery was still staring. 
Vimes shook her gently by the shoulder. Th thank you, sire. The king held out his hand. Vimes wobbled cheery again. Completely hypnotised, she extended her hand. The king took it and shook it. Shocked whispers were spreading behind Vimes. The king had shaken the hand of a self-declared female. "'And that leaves detritus,' said the king. "'What a dwarf should give a troll is, of course, a bit of a puzzle. "'But it occurs to me that what I should give you is what I would give a dwarf. "'A bag of gold, then, for whatever purpose you choose to use it. "'And,' he stood up, he held out his hand. "'Dwarfs and trolls were still fighting in the further regions of Uberwald, Vimes knew. "'Elsewhere there was at best the sort of peace you got when both sides were busy re-arming.' The whispering stopped. Silence spread out in a widening circle all across the floor of the cave. Detritus blinked. Then he took the hand very carefully, trying not to crush it. The whispering started again, and this time Vimes knew it'd go for miles. It occurred to him that in two handshakes the white-bearded elderly dwarf had done more than a dozen devious plots could have achieved. By the time those ripples reached the edge of Uberwald, they would be tidal waves. Thirty men and a dog would be nothing by comparison. Hm? I said, what can a king give a Vimes? said the king. Uh, nothing, I think, said Vimes absently. Two handshakes, and very quietly, smiling, the king had turned the customs of the dwarfs upside down, and so gently, too, that they'd spend years arguing about it. Sam, snapped Sybil, "'Well, then, I shall give something to your descendants,' said the king, apparently unperturbed. A long, flat box was brought to him. He opened it to reveal a dwarf axe, the new metal glinting on its nest of black cloth. "'This will become, in time, the axe of someone's grandfather,' said the king. "'And no doubt over the years it will need a new handle or a new blade, and over the centuries the shape will change in line with fashion,' but it will always be in every detail and respect the axe I give you today. And because it'll change with the times, it'll always be sharp. There's a grain of truth in that sea. So nice to have met you. Do enjoy your journey home, Your Excellency. The four were silent in the coach back to the embassy. Then Cheery said, The king said, I heard, said Vimes. That was as good as saying that he is a sh "'Things are going to change,' said Lady Sibyl. "'That's what the king was saying.' "'I never shook hands with no king before,' said Detritus. "'No dwarf either come to that. "'You shook hands with me once,' said Cheery. "'Watchmen don't count,' said Detritus firmly. "'Watchmen is watchmen.' "'I wonder if it'll change anything,' said Lady Sibyl. "'Vimes stared out of the window. "'It had probably make people feel good,' he thought. But trolls and dwarfs had been fighting for centuries. Ending that sort of thing took more than a handshake. It was just a symbol. On the other hand, the world wasn't moved by heroes or villains or even by policemen. It might as well be moved by symbols. All he knew was that you couldn't hope to try for the big stuff, like world peace and happiness, but you might just about be able to achieve some tiny deed that would make the world, in a small way, a better place like shooting someone. "'I forgot to say that I thought it was very kind of you, Cheery,' said Lady Sybil, "'yesterday, when you comforted Dee.' 
She would have had me killed by the werewolves, said Vimes. He felt this was a point worth making. Yes, of course, but it was kind anyway, said Sybil. Cheery looked at her feet, avoiding Sybil's gaze. Then she coughed nervously and pulled a small piece of paper out of her sleeve, which she handed wordlessly to Vimes. He unfolded it. She gave you these names, he said. Some of these are very senior dwarfs in Ankh-Morpork. Yes, sir, said Cheery. She coughed again. I knew she wanted someone to talk to, and I uh, suggested a few things she might like to talk about. Sorry, Lady Sibyl, it's very hard to stop being a copper. I worked that one out a long time ago, said Sibyl. You know, said Vimes, to break the silence, if we leave at first light tomorrow, we could be through the pass before sundown. And it was a comfortable night, somewhere in the depths of the feather mattress. Vimes awoke a couple of times and thought he could hear voices. Then he sank back into the softness and dreamt of warm snow. He was shaken awake by detritus. It's getting light, sir. Hmm? And there's a Igor and a, a young man out in the hall, said detritus. He got a big jar full of noses and a rabbit covered in ears. Vimes tried to get back to sleep. Then he sat bolt upright. What? It's all covered in ears, sir. You mean one of those rabbits with big floppy ears? You better come and see this rabbit, sniffed the troll. Vimes left Sybil wallowing in sleep, pulled on his dressing gown and pattered barefoot down to the freezing hall. An Igor was waiting anxiously in the middle of the floor. Vimes was getting the hang of Igor recognition. The key was in the pattern of scars, and this was a new one. He was with a much younger um, man, probably barely out of his teens, at least in places, but already the scars and stitching indicated that relentless urge towards self-improvement that was the hallmark of a good Igor. They just never seemed to be able to get the eyes level. Your Excellency. Your Igor, right? Amazing guess, sir. We haven't met before, but I work for Dr. Thalmik on the other side of the mountain, and this is my son, Igor. He smacked the young man around the back of his head. Say hello to his grace, Igor. I don't believe in the peerage, said young Igor sulkily, nor shall I call any man master. See, said his father, sorry about this, your grace, but this is a younger generation for you. I hope you can find a job for him in the big city. "'Cause he's totally unemployable in Uberwald. "'But he's a very good surgeon, even if he does have funny ideas. "'He's got his grandfather's hands, you know.' "'I can see the scars,' said Vimes. "'Lucky little devil, they thought of me mine by rights, "'but he was old enough to go into the lottery.' "'You want to join the watch, Igor?' said Vimes. "'Yes, sir. I believe Ankh-Morpork is where the future lies, sir.' His father leaned closer to Vimes. We don't mention his slight speech impediment, Master, he whispered. Of course, it counts against him here, you know, in the Igor business, but I'm sure people will be kind to him in Ankh-Morpork. Uh, yes, indeed, said Vimes, removing his handkerchief and absent-mindedly dabbing his ear. And uh, this rabbit? He's eerie, sir. Good name, good name. Is that why he's got human ears all over his back? Early experiment, sir. And, uh, the noses? There were about a dozen of them in a large screw-top pickle jar. And they were just noses. Not cut off anyone, as far as Vimes could see. They had 
little legs and were jumping hopefully up and down against the glass, like puppies in a pet shop window. He thought he could hear faint wee noises. The wave of the future, sir, said young Igor. I grow them in special vats. I can do eyes and fingers, too. But they've got little legs. Oh, they wither off in a few hours after they're attached, sir, and they want to be useful, my little noses. Bio-artificing for the next century, sir. None of that outmoded cutting up of old bodies. His father smacked his head again. You see, you see, what's the point in that, wastrel? I hope you can do something with him, master, because I've just about given up. Not worth breaking down for spares, as we say. Vimes sighed. Still, losing small extremities was a daily hazard in the watch, and a lad was, after all, an Igor. It wasn't as if there were any normal people in the watch. He could afford to put up with a nosebreeder in exchange for surgery that didn't involve screaming and buckets of boiling pitch. He indicated a box beside the young man. It was growling and rocking from side to side. "'You haven't got a dog too, have you?' he said, trying to make it sound like a joke. "'That's my tomatoes,' said young Igor. "'A triumph of modern Igoring. They grow enormously.' "'Only because they viciously attack all other vegetables,' said his father. But I'll say this for the lad master. I've never known anyone like him for really tiny stitching. All right, all right, he sounds like the man I'm looking for, said Vimes, or close at least. Take a seat, young man. I just hope there's going to be room in the coaches. The door to the yard swung open, blowing in a few snowflakes and Carrot, who stamped his feet. A bit of snow overnight, but the road looks open, he said. They say there's a really big one due tonight, though, so we... "'Oh, good morning, sir. "'You're fit enough to travel,' said Vimes. "'We both are,' said Angua. "'She crossed the hall and stood next to Carrot. "'Once again Vimes was aware of a lot of words that he hadn't heard. "'A wise man didn't make inquiries at a time like this. "'Besides, Vimes could feel the cold coming up through his feet. "'He reached a decision. "'Give me your notebook, Captain,' he said. "'They watched him scribble a few lines.' Stop at the Clax Tower and send a message on to the yard, he said, handing it back to Carrot. Tell them you're on the way. Take young Igor here with you and get him settled in, OK? And make a report to his lordship. Er, uh, you're not coming, said Carrot. Her ladyship and I will take the other coach, said Vimes, or buy a sleigh. Very comfy things, sleighs. And we'll, we'll just take it a little easier. We'll see the sights. We'll dawdle along the way, understand? He saw Angua smile and wondered if Sybil had confided in her. "'Absolutely, sir,' said Carrot. "'Oh, and uh, go along to Burley and Strong in the arms, order a couple of dozen of everything off the top of their small arms catalogue and get them on the next mail coach due for bonk for the personal attention of Captain Tantony.' "'The mail coach rate will be very expensive, sir,' Carrot began. "'I didn't want you to tell me that, Captain. I wanted you to say, yes, sir.' "'Yes, sir.' "'And ask at the gate about... Three gloomy biddies who live in a big house near here. It's got a cherry orchard. Find out the address, and when you get back, send them three coach tickets to Ankh-Morpork. Right, sir. Well done. Travel safely. I'll see you in a week. Or two. Three at the outside, all right? A few minutes later, he stood shivering on the steps, watching the coach disappear into the crisp morning. He felt a pang of guilt, but it was only a little pang. He gave every day to the watch and it was time, he thought, for it to give him a week, or two, three at the outside. In fact, he realised, as pangs went, it was barely a ping, 
which was, he recalled, a dialect word for water meadow. Right now he could see a future, which was more than he'd ever had before. He locked the door and went back to bed. On a clear day, from the right vantage point on the ramtops, a watcher could see a very long way across the plains. The dwarfs had harnessed mountain streams and built a staircase of locks that rose a mile up from the rolling grasslands, for the use of which they charged not just a pretty penny, but a very handsome dollar. Barges were always ascending or descending, making their way down the river Smaal and the cities of the plain. They carried coal, iron, fire clay, pig treacle, as the treacle mines below Ankh-Morpork had long been exhausted, leaving only a street's name to remember them by. But the collision with the fifth elephant had buried thousands of acres of prehistoric sugarcane around the borders of Uberwald, and the resulting dense crystalline sugar was the foundation of a large mining confectionery and dentistry industry. Oh, and fat, the dull ingredients of the pudding of civilization. In the sharp, thin air, they took several days to get out of sight. On a clear day, you could see next Wednesday. The captain of one of the barges waiting for the top lock went to tip the dregs of his teapot over the side and saw a small dog sitting on the snowy bank. It sat up and begged, hopefully. He turned to go back into the cabin, when he thought, what a nice little doggy. It was such a clear thought that it almost seemed to him that he'd heard it, but he looked around and there was no one else near him, and dogs certainly couldn't talk. He heard himself think, this little doggy would be very useful keeping down rats that might attack the cargo sort of thing. It must have been his thought, he decided. There was no one else nearby, and everyone knew dogs didn't talk. He said aloud, But rats don't eat coal, do they? He thought, clear as day, Ah, oh, well, you never know when they might try, right? Anyway, it's such a sweet-looking little doggy that's been struggling for days through deep snow. Ha! Not that anyone cares. The bargeman gave up. There's only so long you can argue with yourself. Ten minutes later the barge was on the long drop to the plains, with a small dog sitting at the prow enjoying the breeze. On the whole, thought Gaspode, it was always best to look to the future. Nobby Nobs had made himself a shelter up against the wall of the watchhouse and was gloomily warming his hands when a shadow loomed over him. "'What are you doing, Nobby?' said Carrot. Huh? "'Captain!' "'There's no one on the gates. There's no one on patrol. "'Didn't anyone get my message? What's happening?' Nobby licked his lips. "'Well,' he said, "'there isn't, well, there isn't a watch at the moment, not per se.' He flinched. He saw anger behind Carrot. "'Eh, uh, Mr Vimes with you at all?' "'What is happening, Nobby?' "'Well, you see, Fred kind of... "'And then he got all sort of... "'Then next thing you know he was setting for to... And then we, and then he wouldn't come out, and then we, and he nailed at the door, and, and, and Mrs. Fred came and shouted at him through the letterbox, and most of the lads had gone off and got other jobs, and, and now there's just me and Dorful and Reg and Washpot, and we come here, turn and turn about, and we shove food through the letterbox for him, and that's it, really. Can we have that again with the gaps filled in? said Carrot. This took considerably longer. There were still gaps. Carrot forced them open. I see, he said at last. Mr Vimes is going to go spare, isn't he? said Nobby miserably. I wouldn't worry about Mr Vimes, said Angua. Not at the moment. Carrot was looking up at the front door. It was thick oak. There were bars at all the windows. Go and fetch Constable Dorful, Nobby, he said. 
Ten minutes later, the watch house had a new doorway. Carrot stepped over the wreckage and led the way upstairs. Fred Colon was hunched in the chair, staring fixedly at one solitary sugar lump. Be careful, whispered Angua. He might be in a rather fragile mental state. That's very likely, said Carrot. He leaned down and whispered, Fred? Hmm? murmured Colon. On your feet, Sergeant! Am I hurting you? I ought to be. I'm standing on your beard. You've got five minutes to wash and shave and be back here with shining morning face. On your feet, to the washroom, about turn, at the double, one, two, one, two. It seemed to Angua that no part of Fred Colon above the neck, except maybe for his ears, was involved in what happened next. Fred Colon rose at attention, executed a thudding about turn, and doubled out of the door. Carrot spun around towards Nobby. You too, Corporal! Nobby, trembling with shock, saluted with both hands at once and ran after Colon. Carrot went over to the fireplace and poked at the ashes. Oh dear, he said. All burnt, said Angua. I'm afraid so. Some of those heaps were like old friends. Well, we'll find out if we've missed anything important when it starts to smell, said Carrot. Nobby and Colon appeared again, breathless and pink. There were a few bits of tissue stuck on Colon's face where the shaving had been too enthusiastic, but he was nevertheless looking better. He was a sergeant again. Someone was giving him orders. His brain was moving. The world was the right side up once more. Fred, said Carrot. Yes, sir. You've got a bit of bird doings on your shoulder. I'll see to that right now, sir, said Nobby, leaping sideways. He dragged a handkerchief from his pocket, spat on it, and rubbed hurriedly at Colon's temporary pip. All gone now, Fred he said. Well done, said Carrot. He got up and went over to the window. It did not, in fact, offer much in the way of a view, but he looked out of it as if he could see to the end of the world. Colon and Nobby shifted uneasily. Right now they did not like the sound of silence. When Carrot did speak, they blinked as if struck in the face by a cold flannel. What I believe there has been here, he said, is a confused situation. That's right, that's right, said Nobby quickly. We was very confused. Fred? He jabbed Fred Colon with his elbow, waking him from a reverie of terror. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, yeah. Confusion, he mumbled. And I'm afraid I know where the blame ultimately lies, Carrot went on, still apparently engrossed in the spectacle of a man sweeping the opera house steps. In the silence, Nobby's lips moved in prayer. Only the whites of Fred Colon's eyes could be seen. It was my fault, said Carrot. I blame myself. Mr. Vimes left me in charge, and I rushed off with no thought of my duty and put everyone in an impossible position. Fred and Nobby were both wearing the same expression. It was the face of a man who has seen the light at the end of the tunnel, and it has turned out to be the twinkle of the Fairy of Hope. I feel almost embarrassed to ask you two to get me out of this pit I have dug for myself, said Carrot. I can't imagine what Mr. Vimes is going to say. The light at the end of the tunnel winked out for Fred and Nobby. They could imagine what Mr. Vimes would say. However, said Carrot, he returned to the desk and pulled open the bottom drawer, extracting a few grubby pages that were clipped together. They waited. However, each of these men took the king's shilling and swore an oath to defend the king's peace, said Carrot, tapping the paper. An oath, in fact, to the king. Yeah, but that was only... Ah! said Fred Colon. Sorry, sir, said Nobby. I inadvertently trod heavily on Fred's toe while standing to attention. 
There was a long, drawn-out silken sound. Carrot was drawing his sword from its sheath. He'd laid it on the desk. Nobby and Colon leaned away from its accusatory point. They are all good lads, said Carrot softly. I'm sure if the two of you call on each and every one of them and explain the situation, they will see where their duty lies. Tell them. Tell them there is always an easy way if you know where to look. And then we can get on with our jobs. And when Mr. Vimes returns from his well-earned holiday, the somewhat confused events of the past will be merely... Confusing? suggested Nobby, hopefully. Exactly, said Carrot. "'But I'm glad to see you made so much headway with the paperwork, Fred.' Colon stood nailed to the spot until Nobby, saluting desperately with the other hand, dragged him out of the office. Angua could hear them arguing all the way down the stairs. Carrot stood up, dusted off the chair and placed it carefully under the desk. "'Well, we're home,' he said. "'Yes,' said Angua. And she thought, "'You do know how to do nasty, don't you?' but you use it like a claw. It slides out when you need it, and when you don't, there's no sign that it's there. He reached over and took her hand. Wolves, never look back, he whispered.